Amen. What a wonderful morning of worshiping, praising the Lord together. Let's continue to do that as we turn to the 40th Psalm. Psalm 40, excuse me. The 40th Psalm. Let's just read the whole thing. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 17 verses here. This is a, a Psalm of David for the choir director. Psalm 40, this is God's word. I hoped earnestly for Yahweh, and he inclined to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a high rock. He established my steps. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in Yahweh. How blessed is the man who has made Yahweh his trust, has not turned to the proud nor to those who stray in falsehood. Many, O Yahweh, my God, are the wondrous deeds you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. I would declare and speak of them, but... They are too numerous to recount. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My, my ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I desire to do your will, O God. Your law is within my inner being. I proclaim good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Behold, I do not restrain my lips. O Yahweh, you know. I do not conceal your righteousness within my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your salvation. I do not hide your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. You, O Yahweh, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually guard me for. Evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me, so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head. My heart has failed me. Be pleased, O Yahweh, to deliver me. Make haste, O Yahweh, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to sweep it away. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in evil against me. Let Those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, Yahweh be magnified. As for me, I am afflicted and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help, the one who rescues me. Do not delay Oh my God, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. Pray that you would change our hearts through it this morning. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The Psalms. Oh, how we love the Psalms. Why? Well, because in a world full of deception, the Psalms are real. In a world full of fronts and facades, the Psalms are real. In a world full of pretenders, phonies, fakes, and frauds, the Psalms and those who pen them are real. They're genuine, they're authentic, they're sincere. They don't try to be something they're not. 
They don't shrink back uh, from declaring the, shrug- the struggles, the trials, the tribulations uh, that are experienced by the faithful men and women of this earth as we live out the rest of our days on this corrupted and cursed earth. They don't deny this struggle. In fact, they embrace the struggle. They, they acknowledge this struggle as they know that it's the trials that actually draws them nearer to their Lord, their Lord who then gives them a true peace, true joy, a true hope which transcends all earthly circumstances. The Psalms also remind the believer that this isn't a one-time thing. Over and over and over, we, we go through this cycle of struggle and seeking, suffering and seeking, even sinning against, then seeking after the Lord. The psalmists acknowledge this tension. They acknowledge that conflict. They acknowledge the war that's being waged within them, the war waged on the soul by their flesh, a war which all true believers are engaged in to this day, this daily battle with sin and strife and a complete reliance upon, a complete dependence upon the only one who can then deliver them from it, rescue them from it. That's why we love the Psalms. That's why we love the Psalter, because they are songs of the weary soul longing to be at home with the Lord where they belong. Souls which long for that day when that struggle will be over, when the war within us will finally be at an end, that day when we will see our Lord face to face. This 40th Psalm tells a time in David's life where he was right in the thick of the battle when he was down in the pit, he says in verse 2, crying out for help, crying out, To his Lord. He says in verse 1, I hoped earnestly for the Lord, which is another way of saying, I waited for the Lord. Literally, waiting, I waited. I waited earnestly, patiently for Yahweh. And then the rest of the psalm goes on to tell of Yahweh's then drawing near to him and answering him, delivering him, even saving him. Him, all culminating in what I believe is the uh, theme verse or the central verse in verse 16. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let all those who love your salvation say continually, Yahweh be magnified. As we'll see, the psalm isn't so much about David. Rather, it's about David's Lord. It's about his master. It's about his sovereign Lord, the great I am. Yahweh himself. I hoped earnestly for Yahweh, he says. And he inclined to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a high rock. He established my steps. So David is in this pit, this muddy, slimy, miry pit of destruction. But was it a real pit? Was he like actually in a pit in the ground, like a a barren cistern cistern, like Jeremiah found himself in a few hundred years later? When he came to King Zedekiah and said, listen now, the the Chaldeans are coming. (coughs) The king of Babylon is coming. You better submit to him and surrender to him or this place is going to burn. Our city is about to face the wrath and the judgment of almighty God. Submit and live. But the king's men, they didn't like to hear that, right? The soldiers, they didn't want to hear that. They said, oh, Jeremiah, you're too much of a pessimist. We are people of prosperity. We're not people of calamity. We'll be just fine. 
Then they took Jeremiah, they cast him into a cistern of the king's son, letting him down with ropes. And the text says, in this cistern there was no water, only mire. <coughs> it says, Jeremiah sank into the mire. This is where David says he now finds himself. But was it an actual pit? Well, we don't know. Uh, he did have many enemies, many foes. He fought many battles. Maybe he was thrown into a pit, or perhaps this is figurative language. Maybe he's talking in metaphorical terms here. I was in the pit of despair, the pit of despondency, the pit of affliction or mental anguish. Maybe it's a deep depression due, due to unforeseen circumstances, or maybe this was the pit of sin. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul does tell us in Galatians 6, 6 the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption or destruction. It's also translated as. I think a, a metaphorical interpretation is much more likely here. Again, David, he had all kinds of trials, all kinds of tribulations on this earth. God's people, even the most prominent of God's people, kings and priests, prophets and preachers are in no way exempt from trials on this earth. And David could very well have been in the pit of the destruction of his sin. This could have been during the time when his infant son was taken from him after his adulterous and murderous escapades with Bathsheba. We don't know. Could have been the pit of betrayal when his uh, grown son was trying to kill him or, or usurp his position as king of Israel as the hearts of the people were turning away from David, turning to Absalom. It could have been the, the pit of rejection as Saul, his predecessor, sought to pin him to the wall with his spear after succumbing to the bitter envy which consumed his wicked heart, it, it could have been the pit of persecution. As enemies surrounded him on every side, men and women from all the surrounding nations who hated the one true God and therefore hated the people of God. And who better to attack than the leader of the nation of God? What was this particular pit? We don't know. We don't know. The Holy Spirit doesn't elaborate here, which obviously means that's not what's important. What is important is uh, the message found in David's words. I cried. I cried out to Yahweh, and he heard. Yahweh heard. Yahweh hears his people when they cry out to him. He heard David, and he hears us. This all-sovereign, all-knowing, all-wise, infinite Lord, the great I am, hears us. He hears us because he knows us. David says this in Psalm 139. He says, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. He hears us because he knows all. He knows all. And he actually listens to and gives answers to those who are his. Those who, like David, cry out to him, seek to walk in his ways. He hears those who are his. And he establishes them. David says in verse 2, he heard my cry for help. He, he brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a high rock. He established my steps. A thousand years later, Jesus comes on the scene. He's, he's preaching and he's teaching and he tells the people, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them may be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew against and slammed against that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. See, Yahweh is the only one who can deliver David from both the miry pit and the sinking sand of the world and set him upon the solid rock. And it's the same for each one of us. So I just want to ask you this morning, what foundation is your soul resting upon? Are you wise or are you a fool? There's only two options, Jesus says. He's very clear about this. David says, I cried out to the Lord and he heard me. He grabbed me by the cloak. He pulled me out. He set my feet on the solid rock and he established my steps. And another psalm, he says, the Lord is always before me establishing my steps. The the Lord sets the feet. He establishes the steps, makes the paths of his children straight. Is that true of you this morning? Have you heard the word of the Lord and done it? Have you submitted your life, your entire life, all of your steps unto your Lord and declared your will be done? The confidence and the contentment expressed by David here in, in verse 3 and this declaration of joy amidst suffering and amidst trials is only available to those who are his, only for believers, only for the faithful. Uh, several years ago, uh, Lloyd John Ogilvie, a Presbyterian pastor and chaplain to the U.S. Senate, underwent the most difficult year of his life. His wife underwent five major uh, surgeries She had radiation, chemotherapy. Several of his staff members departed. Large problems loomed on every side. All this caused a major emotional discouragement and despondency to come crashing down upon him. But as he reflected back on this crisis, Ogilvie wrote of the abundant joy that he found in the Lord. He said, The greatest discovery that I made in the midst of all the difficulties is that I can have joy when I can't and don't feel like it. When I had every reason to feel beaten, I feel joy. In spite of everything, God gave me the conviction of being loved and the certainty that nothing could separate me from him. It was not general happiness, he says, or gush or jolliness, but a constant flow of the Spirit through me. At no time did he give me the easy confidence that everything would work out as I wanted it on my timetable, but that he was in charge and that he would give me and my family enough courage for each day. He would give me his grace. Joy is always the result of that. Amid, amidst tremendous difficulties, this joy and the grace of the Lord is what caused David to sing with a new song. He says in verse 3, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. As one preacher said, David went from the mire to the choir. It was a new song, which was so open, so unrestrained, that he was confident that man would see and fear the Lord who worked so wonderfully for his people. He said in verse 4, many will see and fear and will trust in Yahweh because of this testimony, because of this authentic testimony. And so again, I ask you, has the Lord put a new song in your mouth? 
do you possess a peace, a hope that surpasses all understanding? Do you possess a true joy that transcends all your earthly circumstances uh, based on the confidence that you're secure in him? Do you, do you know the Lord? Do you know David's Lord? Do you, do you know him and trust him in all aspects and areas of your life? If so, David says in verse 4 that you are truly blessed. How blessed is the man who has made Yahweh his trust. He's blessed. He's happy. That's what this word means in Hebrew. Esher, truly happy. Now, this isn't the surface-level happiness that the world enjoys. It's not a transitory, momentary, fleeing, uh, fleeting rush of endorphins which just comes in some pleasurable encounter or some experience or some sequence of events, but this is true happiness. It's a true blessedness. Jesus spoke of this happiness at the beginning of the greatest sermon in the history of the world when he said, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit. So right from the get-go, you know he's not talking about the world's kind of happiness. Then he confirms it by saying, happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the lowly, he says. Happy are the ones who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Righteousness. David says the very same thing here. How blessed, how happy, truly happy is the man who has made Yahweh his trust. Because this man or this woman is truly poor in spirit, they, they recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, their absolute inability to do anything good apart from the sovereign intervention of their Lord. They can't do it. This person is truly blessed. <clears throat> Happy is the one who is mournful over his transgressions or her transgressions. That he's unable to live up to God's perfect standards for his life. He mourns, he laments over his sin as he knows full well it's his sin that separates him from God, separates him from the God of righteousness, the righteousness which we now hunger for and thirst for and long for as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Blessed is this man, David said. Happy is such a man. Happy is such a woman. He continues in verse 4. Blessed is the one who has not turned to the proud, nor to those who stray into falsehood. This is simply saying the only ones in this world, the only ones who find true happiness are the ones who have made Yahweh their trust instead of other people, which the world does. Other sinful, prideful, deceitful people that This is David's way of of saying Yahweh is the sole source and sole provider of true blessedness, true happiness, true joy, true peace, true hope. He is it. All other ground is sinking sand. And then he goes on to sing his new song. And what follows is an overflowing of praise and adoration to his God, a, a celebration and an exaltation of God's righteous character, his attributes. This is true biblical musical worship here, okay? Something the the modern-day megachurch worship leaders might learn from. Take notes here if you're watching. I know you're not here. Uh, David pens this. He gives this to the choir director of the temple worship and says, here, sing this before the congregation. Remind the congregation of who is truly worthy of praise, not them. Verse 5, 
Many, O Yahweh my God, are the wondrous deeds you have done. And your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. I would declare and speak of them, but they are too numerous to count. David recalls the faithfulness of the Lord in his life, the youngest of the sons of Jesse, chosen by the sovereign will of the Lord to be king, to rule over an entire nation, to be a part of abundant blessing poured out upon the nations, plural. You have been so good to us, Lord. You have been so good to us. You've been so good to this people, he says, and we are so undeserving. There is nothing great about us. There, there is nothing, no redeemable qualities within us. We, we are plagued by a history of apostasy and pride, stiff-necked people. Yet you have showered us with your amazing grace, your abundant mercy. You have delivered us from our enemies. You have delivered us from oppression. You have established this kingdom and have allowed us the privilege to be governed by your holy law. It's a privilege. Even the common graces extended to mankind are in mind here. The, the sun, the moon, the stars, the rain, the food, laughter, art, even relationships that pagans get to enjoy. Common grace of God. He's so good. His, his mindfulness of sinful humanity. Who are we that you are mindful of us? Yet your wondrous deeds abound, David says. That's what this is about. They abound. I would declare and speak of them, but they are too numerous to recount, he says at the end of verse 5. In the middle of verse 5, he says, none can even compare with you. This whole section is like a mini systematic consideration of the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God here. It's great. David is just blown away by his Lord. There is none like you, he says. You're not like the fickle rulers of this world. You're not like the naive and gullible men and women of this world, so easily swayed and manipulated, so prone to wander are we. You're not even like the, the gods they've created in their own imaginations. The best that they could come up with in all their philosophy and all their reasoning are gods that are so capricious, so temperamental that they are fully dependent on their worshipers to act. The very best of the divine beings that mankind could create in their own wicked hearts and minds don't even come close to comparing with your majesty. They don't even come close to comparing with your infinitely holy and righteous character. And that's exactly right. God said the same thing about himself, didn't he? Isaiah 46, For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Yahweh. Your faithfulness also in the assemblies of the holy ones. For who in the sky is comparable to Yahweh? Who among the sons of the mighty is like Yahweh, a God greatly dreaded in the council of the holy ones and fearsome above all those who are around him? O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Yah? The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and its fullness, you have founded them. Question, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? Answer, none. He's in incomparable to anyone or anything else in all of creation because he is the creator, which is why our souls sing, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. 
And David says, his wondrous deeds are too numerous to count. Do you know him, my brothers and sisters? Do you know this Lord? Do you know him? You can know him. Do you, do you trust in the sovereign Lord of all creation? He bids you come this morning, if not. He then goes deeper. Remember, this is in the midst of trials here. This is in the midst of tribulation, troubles. David continues to reveal the righteous character of God and even goes on to tell us exactly how we can know him. Look at verse 6. Sacrifice a meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened, literally dug out. You've dug out my ears. Uh, Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, behold, I come, and in the scroll of the book it is written of me, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my inner being. Now remember, David is writing this under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. Okay, do you see what the Spirit is saying here? You you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm not interested in vain rituals. Empty sacrifices. The rituals are important. The sacrifices are necessary because they're from God. But he's not interested in ritual alone, customs alone, in sacrifices alone. He's interested in the heart behind the rituals and the customs, the, the one who knows the heart. He knows the intricacies of our heart. He knows our thoughts. He knows our true motivations. He wants obedience in terms of our doing his will. He doesn't need bulls and goats and lambs. Isaiah 1, he says, What are your multiple sacrif- multiplied sacrifices to me, says Yahweh? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle. And in the blood of bulls and lambs or goats, I take no pleasure. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me, he says. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocation. I cannot endure wickedness in the solemn assembly. My soul hates your new moon. Hates your new moon festivals. He hates your appointed times. They become a burden to me, he says. He says, I'm weary. I'm weary of bearing them. Why did he say that? Why would he say that? Well, because the people of Israel were offering sacrifices in the temple. They were observing all these holy days while walking in blatant and repeated disobedience to his commands. Samuel told King Saul the same thing. Remember, Saul, King Saul kept disobeying God. God says, Saul, I want you to kill the Amalekites and all their animals with them. Saul says, no. And he takes the animals as spoils of war. Uh, God says, Saul, kill Agag, their king. Saul says, no. Spares his life. Samuel comes to him and says, what in the world are you doing? God gave you a direct order, and you've been blatantly disobeying them. Saul says, don't sweat it. I'll just offer a sacrifice to him. We'll sacrifice all these new animals we got, the ones he told us to kill. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to offer these. But you know what Samuel said? He said, has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To heed the... To heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion, listen to this. For rebellion 
is as the sin of divination. And insubordination is as wickedness and idolatry. So much for easy believism. So much for carnal Christianity. Lord does not change. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Insubordination is as wickedness and idolatry because you have rejected the word of Yahweh. He has also rejected you from being king. Took the whole kingdom away. You're no longer king, Saul. Samuel rebukes Saul. He hacks Agag to pieces right in front of him. Then he turns his back on Israel's first king. And his point is this. It's not just about killing animals. He doesn't need you offering up animals to him. They belong to him in the first place. He doesn't need your animals. These are vain scapegoats here. Don't just go around slaughtering animals if you're not going to take to heart what they represent. Right? Just a psycho. It's the same way for us here in the church, though. God doesn't need us to sing to him. (laughs) He doesn't need us to sing to him. He's got a heavenly choir, and they all have perfect voices. (laughs) Noel, your voice is great. (laughs) But man, I tell you, this heavenly chorus, he, he doesn't need us to come together every Sunday. He doesn't need us to preach his word. He doesn't need us to pray or undergo baptisms or take the Lord's Supper together like we're doing him some big favor here or even worse, to fulfill some traditional obligation. No, he doesn't want us to come in here and just go through the motions. Uh, He's given us all these things to participate in, to partake of, that we might be able to express the new inclination of our transformed hearts to to display outwardly this inward change, this inward faith. We can sing praises to him because we know him and we love him. And like David, we can recount his faithfulness, the multitude of his wondrous deeds. We can preach about his righteous character, not just because that's what's always been done, not just because that's what you do in church, but because we know him. We truly know him and we love him and we can't help but tell about his wondrous works to anyone who will hear them. And we meet so, so we can know him better. So we can know the things that he loves and the things that he hates and then walk in obedience to his will for our lives. That's David, David's point here. Yahweh doesn't want empty praise or tradition. He wants our hearts, our whole hearts. Psalm 51, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. He says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David has a broken heart here, and the Lord does not despise it, does he? Jesus said the same thing, right? Quoting Isaiah, he says, these people honor me with their lips. They're doing all the rituals, they're all the customs, all the sacrifices. They're playing the part, but their hearts are what? Far from me. Far from me. Nothing more than religious lip service. He hates it. May it not be so with us here at Lakewood Bible Chapel, my brothers and sisters. May we always come into this place with the proper motivation. Is that true of you? God doesn't want your traditions. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. Ask yourself, 
what am I doing here this morning? Why am I in this little church in Lakewood, Colorado? What, what am I doing here? Singing these songs, hearing these messages every week, fellowshipping and serving alongside these people? You ever think about that? What are we doing here? <coughs> well, if we're just doing this because that's what our parents did, then we have the wrong motivations. Our grandparents. If we're doing this to obtain or maintain some godly image within Christendom, then we have the wrong motivations. If we're doing this because we're lonely, we need some friends, we need some social interaction because we like the community, because we like the music, we like the preaching, then we're doing it for the wrong reasons. We have the wrong motivations. If we're here to see how God can better prosper us in business or to help us with our marriages or our ability to parent well, if we're here to s- just to make our wives happy or our husbands happy to be a good role model for our children, then we have the wrong motivation. The Lord knows your heart. If we're here to figure out how to be better men and women, better members of society who always pay their taxes and know how to balance their checkbooks, then we have the wrong motivation. If we're here because we think God will then owe us something that will cause God to bless us with health and wealth or comfort in this life, then, my friends, we have the wrong motivation. And I don't know how in the world you found this church. I'm glad, glad you're here, though. If we're here to get all fired up and all worked up so we can go out and fight against the evil forces of this world to be better equipped to speak out against the wickedness of this world, then we have the wrong motivation. I would say any of the above would be selfish, sinful, and even damnable motivations. They will damn us. But if we're here to give our lives to the Lord, to give our hearts, our entire beings to the Lord, submit our entire selves to the Lord and His will, to hear His word, to be instructed by his word to be informed and transformed and conformed by his word, if we are here to then obey his word and give him all the praise and all the glory and all the honor with sincere hearts full of adoration for even giving us the privilege of learning to obey him, for even giving us the privilege to worship him, then, my brothers and sisters, then we have the right motivation. We are here for the right reasons, and he will accept our sacrifice. He will hear our prayers. He will take delight in what we do here on Sunday morning. David says in verse 6, that's my motivation. Your word has not fallen on hard, obstinate, self-seeking ears. No, my ears you have dug open. So I said, behold, I come. This is similar to Isaiah when he said, Here I am, Lord. Send me. I want to obey your will, not my will, but your will be done, whatever that looks like. Again, verse 7 says, In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my inner being. There you go. You want to know how to uh, truly know this great God? He says it right there. Your law is within my inner being. 
the scroll here is a reference to the scriptures, which David, being king of Israel, would have a personal copy. It was in these scrolls that David would uh, discover much of God's holy character as well as the Lord's will for his life, which, again, he then desired to obey. He desired to do God's will, but did he always succeed? No. And just like all other believers throughout the ages here, David failed to live up to God's perfect will all day, every day. I mean, we can hardly make it down the street without deviating from the right to the left here, whether in thought, word, or deed. No, there's only one who has ever been able to do the will of Yahweh, and who was that? That's right, the Lord Jesus Christ. How fitting then that the writer of Hebrews actually quotes this verse as he explains the substitutionary sacrifice for sinners in the 10th chapter. He says, Therefore, when he, that is Christ, comes into this world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Same verbiage here. Speaking of ultimate obedience, the ultimate surrender is the incarnate God. God the Son was given a body. He was born into this world as of a virgin. He was born truly man, yet truly God, which allowed him to live a perfect, sinless, spotless life, only to be delivered into the hands of lawless men, his own people. And to the Romans, he would die as a perfect substitute for all who would believe in him and call upon his name alone for salvation and reconciliation to the Father. And on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. He's the greatest example of not my will, but your will be done, who has ever lived. This has caused even reputable theologians to believe this entire song Psalm is actually messianic in nature. In fact, some have attributed every word of Psalm 40 to Christ's suffering, submission, and obedient sacrifice. But this is impossible. It's not possible. David will go on to recount his iniquities that have overtaken him in verse 11. Christ did not have iniquity. No, this is simply, uh, verses in 7 and 8 are simply David saying, I don't want to honor you with my lips while my heart is far from you. A desire to do your will is revealed to me in your holy and inspired word because he knows that it's then, and only then, that he can go into a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell, which is exactly what he does in the rest of the psalm. Look at verse 9. He says, I proclaim good news of righteousness in the great assembly. That's everyone. Everyone who can hear my voice, hear me now. Behold, I do not restrain my lips. O Yahweh, you know. I do not conceal your righteousness within my heart. I speak of your faithfulness, your salvation. I do not hide your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. This word loving kindness is the word hesed speaks of his loyal love, his steadfast love demonstrated to those who belong to him. He has a certain kind of love for all of his creatures. He loves his whole creation, but he has a, in, in, his, in his common graces toward them, but he has a special love for those who are his, for the faithful, those who belong to him. It's a loyal love. He is altogether righteous. He is altogether good, which is what David proclaims. He will not go back on his promises because he is truthful. He is truthful. You, O Yahweh, will not withhold your compassion from me. 
Your loving kindness, your truth will continually guard me. That's verse 11. That's David's refuge, his stronghold. That's his mighty fortress. When all around David's soul gives sway, Yahweh is all his hope and stay, which is exactly what he says in verse 12. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me, so I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head. My heart has failed me. This is a little thing called personal responsibility. That pit that he found himself in earlier, very likely, we don't know this for sure, but very likely was a reference to the pit and mire of his own transgression. He knew he had transgressed the will of a holy God. He knew he had sinned against Yahweh, his Lord, and he knew it. He didn't deny it. He owned it. And he says, I didn't just sin once. I can't even count how many times I've sinned against you, O Lord. He says, way beyond the number of hairs on my head, which for some of us are a bit easier to count. (laughs) The follicles are still there. There's just nothing coming out. David says, I know what I've done. I'm in no position to ask anything of you, really, but if it would please you, have compassion on me. Demonstrate that loyal love to me yet again, yet again. Verse 13, be pleased, O Yahweh, to deliver me. Make haste, O Yahweh, to help me. Then in verse 14, he talks about actual physical enemies. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to sweep it away. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in evil against me. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! You're no follower of God. Today they might say, hmm, some Christian you are. David knows that Yahweh will show compassion on whom he will show compassion, but he also knows that God is a just God, that he has a mighty arm, that his hand is strong, that his right hand is exalted, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. May we never forget it. So he pleads with the Lord, as he does in other psalms, take care of him for me. Wipe out my enemies, if that's your will. This is a good lesson for us here. If we truly trust in the sovereign will of the Lord, we will submit even the mockery and the scorn of our enemies to him. The persecution of our enemies into his hand. He knows, right? Vengeance belongs to who? The Lord. That's right. That's right. As this psalm comes to a close, we come to what I believe is the key verse, the pinnacle, the culmination, the summation of this 40th psalm, which is verse 16. After all this, uh, the pit, the mire, the clay, the iniquity that surpassed the number of hairs on his head, the unfaithful hearts of man, the multitudes of his enemies that surround him, he brings it all back to glorying in his Lord. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, Yahweh be magnified. That's what he's done here throughout this whole psalm, right? He's demonstrated to the great assembly through this psalm written for the choir director that, that he serves a big God. David was a, a big God preacher, big God prophet and king. He says, I'm crying, yeah, but only because I know that Yahweh hears me. 
He will deliver me. He will establish me. He will put a new song in my mouth. He's done it before so many times I can't even put a number on it. His wondrous deeds are too numerous to count. I've lost track because he's faithful all day, every day. He is incomparable. Who is like Yahweh? No one. He is altogether righteous. He is altogether merciful. Displaying his loving kindness to all those who belong to him, the the only source of truth in a world full of deceit. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just, perfectly just. But he's compassionate, right? David says, I'm crying out to you because I know your character. I know you are compassionate. And the psalm couldn't end any better in my opinion. I love this last verse. After all this praise, after all this exultation, after oozing confidence in his God who has delivered him over and over and over again, he says in verse 17, As for me, I am afflicted and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help, the one who rescues me. Do not delay, oh my God. That about sums up our lives here on earth, our daily lives here, right? People of God. We have victory. We have growth. We are being strengthened, edified, and then we blow it by falling into some temptation. Something happens. Something comes about in our lives that causes us to doubt or fret or fear or worry. It causes our hearts to grieve, to doubt the love that our Lord has for us, to doubt his loyal love. But when this happens, it will only cause true believers to lean into him that much more. To recognize their absolute and total dependence upon him and him alone to sustain them, to even draw them closer to him through the difficulties in this life. That's Psalm 40. That's the declaration of David in Psalm 40. I'm in trouble. I need you. I'm I'm waiting for you. I cry out to you. I thank you. I trust you because I know you, and therefore I will obey you and magnify your name. And then we do it all over again. I'm in trouble. I need you. I'm waiting for you. I cry out to you. I thank you. I trust you because I know you. Therefore, I will obey you and magnify your holy name. And this is your life until you go to be with him in glory. in a place where there are no more trials, where there are no more enemies, where there's no more sadness, no more tears, no more pits, no more struggles, no more fear, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more worry, no more deception, no more flaming darts of the evil one, no more sin, right? Praise Praise the Lord. Only perfect fellowship with our perfect Lord. And I'll just be straight up with you guys this morning. The only way. The only way this can be a reality in your life. The only way you can enjoy this type of fellowship and the type of fellowship David speaks of here in Psalm 40 is by coming to Yahweh through the one we spoke of earlier, the Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you, if you've never done so, to to come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Give him the glory, great things he has done. You would ask him to forgive you of your sin, to give you the strength to turn from your sin, to turn back to him, that he he would allow you to turn to him by grace alone, through faith alone, 
in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, that he would have compassion on you, that he would have mercy upon you and deliver you from his everlasting wrath and bring you into his everlasting presence in the new heavens and the new earth. All through the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray and we'll have this precious Noel come up and lead us (laughs) in musical worship. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Accept our praise now and our worship to you. You alone are worthy of our praise, and it's a delight to give it to you this morning. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.